I'm Bill Bubert, retired Army officer and a regular warfare practitioner and scholar. Welcome to Chasing Ghosts and a Regular Warfare Podcast, the show that examines the mythos, lost history, bad thinking, martial malpractice, and government incompetence that informs so much of a regular warfare. I want to peek behind the curtain at the vast machinery and briar patch politics of insurgency and counterinsurgency and everything in between. Now, let's go ghost hunting together. Welcome to episode 26 of Chasing Ghosts. This one is called Review and Discussion Tattoo Zoo by Paul Avalon. This is a work of fiction. I find in, I find that fiction is pretty instructive. My normal reading cadence is two to three nonfiction, one fiction book. But I find that fiction can teach us a lot. I find that there are seminal war novels that have been out there from the Iliad back in the ancient Greek era to Gore Vidal's historical fiction throughout the 18th and 19th century, which I consider some of the best writing in American letters to The Centurions by Jean Lartguy, which uh, was about the French Foreign Legion in Algeria. Uh, World War II would be From Here to Eternity by James Jones. Tim O'Brien's novels about the Vietnam conflict. I can't really think of any great novels that have come out of the recent wars in the last two decades that infamously ended a little bit ago on Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, the Horn of Africa, and all the other neo-imperialist American and allied shit pits that have been scattered around the world in the 21st century. And then I ran across Tattoo Zoo by Paul Avalon, which is just a wonderful novel. It, it, it ties in a bow so many great things, great writing, great narrative, a scintillating read. I love Military fiction. I love military science fiction. I plan on covering military science fiction in several episodes in the future because I really enjoy that, of course. If I have any Robert Heinlein fans out there, you'll really dig it. So I said, well, what what would be the seminal, the signature novel of this era? Well, I think Paul Avalon has delivered it in this book. I commend it to your attention. I urge everybody within earshot of this podcast to buy a copy, support Mr. Avalon, of course, and uh, read it. I, I think it's well worth your time. Fiction provides us with a tremendous way to transmit moral ideas, philosophical ideas, in this case, martial ideas, in a fashion in which the novelist can sort of constrain the timeline, maybe bend things to artistic license to keep it interesting, maybe even to tell a story that so energizes and innervates the reader, it either causes them to reflect and contemplate upon the very thing they read, find more books, share that book with others, those others read it, folks talk about it. I mean... This is great fiction. Fiction. This, is, as a matter of fact, I, I put this on the um, on the level of Fraser, who wrote Cold Mountain, which is one of the most lyrical and literary novels I've ever read. Again, I highly recommend Cold Mountain and the movie, and I recommend that to your attention. But this one is almost as lyrical and so well done. So I'd like to get started by giving you a quick plug of one of my favorite fiction readers 
who happens to write apocalyptic fiction. His name is Craig DeLuey, and he has written two of the very best small unit action combat novels that I've ever read. One is called Tooth and Nail, and the other one is called Killing Floor. As a matter of fact, there's three of them, I think, in this. It may even be a trilogy. I think it's called um, Infection. So I, I, they're set in a post-apocalyptic near world, but what I really appreciate about DeLuis' books is not only his competence and martial literacy for a guy who never served a day in the military on how to describe combat action, how to get the weaponry right, how to get the narrative framework right, and just how to make it so interesting. So the first of those three books I would recommend would be Tooth and Nail. Again, like Paul Avalon's Tattoo Zoo, Before You Die, I recommend you read these books. Craig DeLouis has a blog in which I think, at my urging, he happened to read this book and left a review. So I, wa- I, I wanted to uh, read this review, if I may, and borrow from some of his thoughts And then we're going to take a look at Havoc Journal and see what they have to say. So it reads, I quote, written by Paul Avalon, a veteran who spent more than three years in Afghanistan as a SF guy and then as a civilian embedded journalist. He says Tattoo Zoo is one of the best, if not the best war novel of the war on terror era. I agree with Craig. The novel begins with the Tattoo Zoo, a regular infantry platoon assigned to a combat outpost in a remote valley in Afghanistan near the Pakistani border, traveling in their gun trucks to a village in the Washima Valley. Their mission is to escort two civilian contractors, a bright, lovable young woman and a sarcastic, experienced former Marine who will interview the locals, part of a human team, a human intelligence, a human terrain team that is there. As this is a counterinsurgency war for hearts and minds, these interviews produce intelligence about the battle spaces, human terrain, the complex culture, and tribal relationships that comprise local politics in Afghanistan. Well, when tragedy strikes, the zoo finds itself accused of a horrific war crime and then, in an even worse situation, trapped by circumstance by an experienced, numerically superior enemy force that is hell-bent on their destruction Can they win, or more to the point, will any of them survive what's coming? Well, that's pretty much the plot, though it hardly scratches the surface of this very long, no, don't think long, think big war novel. First thing that drew me in was the voice, which is wry and playful, but doesn't pat itself on the back. From there, it just builds. We get to know a large cast of characters with some depth showing the humanity of soldiers and revealing the motivations and thought processes of everybody from grunts in combat to the officers and NCOs who lead them to helo pilots, defying orders to help people they don't even know to the top brass trying to control the story and the narrative. Not every character is likable, but if they all get their say, they are all believable, and they all influence the story in some way, like pieces that add up to a single chain of events That's really a mosaic of people in small events and discussions. I particularly enjoyed the way the soldiers aren't cookie-cutter heroes or victims or earnest hua types, but real people. Some who fit the mold and who don't. Over time, Avalon leans on the humanity of his characters, offering a solid story that slowly reveals far more literary aspirations. As a man who served in Afghanistan, the author has a point of view. 
though it's not forced on the reader. Instead, he shows the folly of military counterinsurgency policy by offering up a worst-case scenario in which these policies are used against the Americans, along with other trade-offs. The enemy in this book knows what it's doing, and it recognizes the battle space includes the American media and high command. Despite this point of view, Avalon gives the other side its full say about why these policies are in place. As a civilian, it made me wonder how the war could be won, with the military simultaneously being tasked with fighting an insurgency, but with severe restraint to avoid civilian casualties. Putting the soldier at additional risk and with casualties being inevitable anyway in war, casualties that then prolonged the insurgency. Another theme I found engaging was a conflict between getting ahead in the military and doing the right thing. Then there's the action, which was riveting. I felt like I was watching Outpost, one of my favorite war movies. Again, that would be the one about the idiotic cop in Afghanistan that was heroically defended by the young soldiers there. Avalon's writing ensures you really care if these guys are going to survive this, and nobody is safe. As the siege wears on, there's a lot of great shifts in the balance of power and use of tactics to push every edge. As a thriller alone, it's top-notch stuff. Though again, it's far more than that. Another thing I loved was you occasionally see a trope common in war films like A Dying Comrade, but Avalon reinvents it by making it real, making it truly matter, and making you feel it. In the end, Craig DeLuis says, I love Tattoo Zoo. It really put me as a civilian into the boots of a soldier on the ground in the Forever War. It's riveting as a thriller, and it goes much further to present a highly nuanced perspective on the war that respects its readers as adults. It's highly recommended. End of quote. In this case, he spells adults with a U instead of an O. And the latter, of course, would describe most of the American polity and audience. So, again, I wanted to give Craig a chance to shout out on what he thought about it because I thought his review was compact, succinct, terrific, and really describe the book. I love this book so much. I think that the narrative framework covers so many things. There was a book by a fellow by the name of Anton Myrer, and when I was called Once an Eagle, and when I was a young officer in the U.S. Army, I was told this was the book to read. In that book, you had two characters who were juxtaposed against one another, graduating from West Point, going into the army, and serving in several wars. And the juxtaposition was one of these men, and they would both later become general officers, was a self-serving colon connoisseur officer aspirant who had aristocratic qualities, who would do anything it took to get ahead, while the other one was a serving combat officer who did everything he could to take care of his men. That juxtaposition provided most of the necessary dramatic tension in Once an Eagle to show the character arcs and where they went. Again, I would also recommend Once an Eagle by Anton Myrer, probably, uh, again, one of the seminal novels that doesn't necessarily cover a war, but covers wars over a span of time in the 20th century. So this book was published in 2015, I think that it was. And in the Havoc Journal, H-A-V-O-K, Nate Coffey did a review that I wanted to draw some quotes from. Quote, honor lost and occasionally reclaimed. Intelligent cowardice and crazy stupid bravery. The close relationship with death maintained by the infantry. The practicality of letting your men die or upholding a sense of honor in a bad situation. Brotherhood that breaks boundaries. Pure, delicious, unadulterated violence. These are quotes from Coffey. 
These are all the themes found in Paul Avalon's novel Tattoo Zoo. The book is a novel of the war in Afghanistan is seen through the eyes of the modern American soldier. Having been through the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, I have deliberately avoided all books on the subject. So when I tell you that this was the best book I have ever read on the war on terror, it won't mean much. I will say that this is by far one of the best war novels I have ever read in my life. And, of course, I agree with Mr. Coffee. It's not an anti-war book. It's not a pro-war story either. It's not a documentary or an historical novel. It is essentially a parable of what war is and what it can be. The story takes place in the cauldron of Afghanistan and the war itself in the span of three days. The author takes us through a firestorm in a fictional valley and explores the harsh reality in a remote combat outpost. The main characters are the soldiers of what could be an infantry platoon who are affectionately known as Tattoo Zoo. During a series of events on patrol where these grunts act like every other grunt platoon would, they find themselves on the radar of the commander of all U.S. and NATO forces in Afghanistan. The general and his subordinates face with a probable media storm in the face of the platoon's grievous rules of engagement violations. Then have to make the unfortunate but not atypical choice of standing behind their soldiers or coldly allowing the problem of the platoon to be destroyed. Now, Avalon captures the essence of the grunts perfectly, particularly in the dialogue. It's like Quentin Tarantino wrote a war novel where the action is just perfectly captured and mixed with the equal, equally compelling words. One aspect of the book that intrigued me, that being coffee, was the author's ability to transition between the viewpoints of the characters, each of whom has a drastically different way of describing events and thoughts. There's a mercenary veteran, veteran Kyle Wolf, who is attached to the zoo as part of the human terrain team, a civilian anthropologist. In Wolf, you see the voice of the author played out in jaded, often humorous bits of dialogue in reaction to a third world enemy, often outsmarting the mighty American military machine. When describing their Taliban enemy, he says, in this case, the fictional character Kyle Wolf, quote, their $4 AKs are more effective than our billion-dollar B-2 bomber if you're not going to use it. If you don't have the cojones to use it, who's Santa Ana here and who's the Alamo? To which the intellectual medic, Doc Eberly, responds, learned of himself that he would not run away that he could be very afraid and still not run from the sound of the guns. Yet, off the battlefield, away from war, he's learned that a man against, again, doubts his courage, needs to reaffirm it, become confident again at it, envies those who are in the midst of battle challenging themselves, feeling less of himself for being safely away from the battlefield as if perhaps he was courageous in the past, but would run this next time. And the only way to be confident in one's courage is to be tested, placing oneself voluntarily again in war in spite of the first-hand knowledge of one's breathless near immobilizing terror of the previous time, end of quote. And of course, the reader gets to read about the perfect platoon sergeant many of us have seen, and all of us have wanted to be Sergeant First Class Red Cloud. This guy is quite simply the man. He is the perfect warrior, confident in his abilities and courage, a man who will never let his soldiers down, quote, wolf down at the top of the trail, with his head just above the level of the ledge, had his eyes on Red Cloud's back, and he sees a man who he will willingly follow to hell, will volunteer to follow to hell. Name the date, name the time, the ruck's packed, let's go. End of quote. There's even a character who is that guy, 
Anyone who has ever served has known that guy, the dude, that is a reason all the rules are made, and who believes that everyone has a right to his opinions. If you don't know that guy, then it was probably you. In this case, he is PFC Holloway, who, for example, can't understand the term inshallah, so he goes around saying enchilada instead. Again, coffee. This book is not just for the intellectuals debating the ins and outs of our efforts in Afghanistan. If you're like myself and you need to have a bit of violence to make a book worthwhile, this novel has it in abundance. The difference is that it isn't written as a cheap thrill. It has a purpose, and the reader is required to see through the haze of bullets into the real nature of the combat our forces endure every day. The action junkies will get a thrill out of the battle sequences, which are portrayed with an authenticity only written by those who have actually been in a two-way rifle range. So maybe you're neither the intellectual studying the concepts of leadership in politics or the thrill addict looking for the next literary firefight. Maybe you're a parent or spouse of a veteran who's curious as to why that person in your life was so changed by these wars. Maybe you've never been in or around the military and you're seeking to understand that minuscule 0.5% of our nation's citizens who volunteered to go to a third world nation or two for reasons you've never figured out. You should also read this book, and you should do it while suppressing that tendency common in our country of being offended by everything. Read with an open mind, and your understanding will be challenged and hopefully increased. And a quote that is coffee on the Havoc Journal. I perused several reviews and found both of these, and Louis, of course, to be probably the most compelling ones that I discovered. So good on coffee. Good on DeLuey. They did a great job distilling what this book was all about. What I found incredibly compelling was not only the authenticity of how infantrymen behave as individuals, how they behave as a team, the reality of the small unit tactics that take place in this book, even as a weapons geek myself, the authenticity of how weapons are portrayed in what they are, how they perform, how they don't perform, and what they do to folks who are on the other way of this two-way rifle range. Not to give away too much or too many spoilers, just so you know, what the, the primary tension device in here, besides what's going on with the general officers above at their comfortable ISAF headquarters in Kabul and what they end up doing to this platoon... What happens is after that HTT comes in, that human anthropology team, the, uh, there, there's a battle in Wajma, and they're attacked and they respond, but they leave before they can assess the number of Afghans they've killed, and it's at a alleged schoolhouse. The next day, the Taliban released a video of dead women and children being removed from the school building they were attacked in. The ISAF Headquarters staff decide the platoon must be arrested and charged, so Lieutenant Colonel Zach Dove is sent to arrest them, but decides before he does that they will return to the valley and gather further evidence at that site. So, as the book cover states, which, and I love the book cover on this, and I'll see if I can find a way for you guys to see that, 43 Americans entered and only seven walked out. The Taliban have set a trap for the platoon knowing that the weather is going to keep planes and helicopters from being able to rescue or assist the platoon, bringing in several hundred fighters to attack them, along with heavy weaponry. So the book goes on to talk about this twists and turns, and the plot grinds forward in its bloody fashion. 
just a very compelling and terrific read. Highly recommended to all of you who are listening. What I love about fiction is fiction is a tell. Fiction is a way where one can relate a story. Having home educated all of our children, reading was a huge part of what we did. So we had a hybrid concoction of what we did to home educate our children, not homeschool them, but to home educate them because we did not want to replicate what was happening in the government schools. We're OG, we're original gangster home educators because we were doing it when it wasn't cool back in the 90s and into the 2000s. My wife, in all of her maternal brilliance and intellectual brilliance, adopted a sort of three-pronged hybrid that included a um, Charlotte Mason whole reading technique, unschooling, and incorporating the Greco-Roman curricula of the trivium and the quadrivium, which would drive our children not only to master Latin, not only to master logic, not only to master those things that they wish, for instance, after a while, after all of them had achieved that baseline of number, uh, numeracy and literacy and all but one of them developed a almost innate and voracious willingness and love of reading, we would move on to things that suited their particular interests. So with fiction, we would use that on occasion as a vehicle for all or some of the children to either sate their interest, increase their interest, or give them a, a look or, a, or maybe a glimpse through a keyhole into other worlds, whether that was reading Jurassic Park, for instance, or reading some war novels like Red Badge of Courage and some stuff from the 18th century are reading the Blood and Virtue novels of the Victorian age by G.A. Henty, which I highly recommend every young boy and young man read uh, dozens of these books. I remember at one time we probably had 50 volumes plus on the shelves of G.A. Henty. As a matter of fact, in my home education journey, we probably had a local, in Idaho at least, uh, Library of Alexandria of homeschooling books. And we also cooperated with other homeschoolers and home educators to either leverage what their specialties were or their talents in, in either maths or science or whatever the case may be, or sharing books. There was a cooperative library among all the home education families that we met with and interacted with in which we'd check libraries' books out together from each other to read so we wouldn't have to spend as much. Because when you home educate, not only was I forced through my property taxes to pay the levy for indoctrinating government school children in the various ways and measures the state wants them to be, but I had to subsidize the education of my own, who I had removed from said government school complex. So the plug I'm making is that don't diminish fiction as a learning opportunity for yourself or your children or your grandchildren or think that, well, that's fiction. It's not real history or anything like that. It's a great way for one to communicate in a condensed format a lot of the lessons one would take volumes and volumes of primary and secondary source documentation to master. So there is great fictional literature out there for you to take advantage of, especially when it comes to the literature of war. 
I wanted to quote briefly from the book Encyclopedia of American War Literature by Philip K. Jason and Mark A. Graves, published in 2001. Quote, war literature, particularly fiction, lends itself to classification by duration and focus of conflict. That is, plots are derived from such frames as A Tour of Duty, James Webb's Fields of Fire, Campaigns, John Del Vecchio's The 13th Valley, particularly battles or skirmishes, Humphrey Cobb's Paths of Glory, and sometimes the contours of a single day, Harry Brown's A Walk in the Sun and David Halberstam's One Very Hot Day. Another mark of differentiation is a commander unit level, a focusing decision of critical importance that is often related to point of view. Most American war fiction is pitched at the company level, notably William March's Company K and James Jones' The Thin Red Line. However, the narrower platoon or squad narratives are abundant, and the broader battalion-level narrative, which is likely to become a headquarters tale, is available. Works focused on air and sea combat have similar ranges of reference and focus. Many successful works like James Michener's The Bridges at Toko Re gain their organizing strength from the combination of parameters, the military objective, and the military unit. Now, as a subject for literary treatment, then, war as combat action has convenient handles and shapes. It is therefore a storyteller's delight. In the American war narratives of the 20th century, the command level of the company or subunit allows for the panorama of types, the American boys from varied backgrounds that constitute a special version of the melting pot myth. So what this tells us is that there is a broad panoply of all of this. I'm, I, I'm also a, um, a keen amateur naval historian, so I remember cutting my teeth on C.S. Forrester's Hornblower novels as a young lad, then graduating to a variety of others to include the Aubrey Matron series of novels, totaling 19 and a half volumes in Patrick O'Brien's stories of Like a Master and Commander. Some of you may be familiar with that particular film, which was tremendous. I consider it one of the most perfect war films ever made. And his characterizations and the way he immersed and marinated you in the Napoleonic Navy at the end of the, the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century and how the Royal Navy worked at that time, just really fascinating. As a matter of fact, I, I did get a chance to tour the HMS Surprise analog ship that they built for Master and Commander in San Diego Harbor several years ago, and that was particularly fun. Remember that I mentioned earlier about what was characterized by the Victorians as the blood and virtue novels in the 19th century, G.A. Henty's novels for young boys that would cover everything from the American Civil War to the English Civil War to the Napoleonic Wars that took place and everything in between to include going back to William Wallace at the Battle of Culloden and all of that, but characterized it and made it so it was accessible and, and, um, and could be read by young men, or young boys in this case, who were, who were coming up in life. And all the mass moral lessons that one can divine from this, as I have mentioned in previous episodes, war is the largest and probably one of the most theatrical human endeavors when it comes to complex adaptive systems of different origins clashing together and seeing what that violence mix and ebb and flow creates and turns into over time. So I highly recommend, again, Tattoo Zoo is just a, 
a tremendously compelling read, and I do think it may be the seminal novel for the 21st century as far as the wars that America and its allies, wars of choice, by the way, involved itself in, in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, the Horn of Africa. I have no doubt whatsoever that in the future other novels will come out because what you'll find is that ex post facto after the Napoleonic Wars, going back to the first American Revolution, second American Revolution from 1860 to 65, the Spanish-American War, name any conflict one can probably find not only contemporaneous accounts that are disguised as memoirs, as we found with my Afghansi episode where I talked about the way it was frowned upon for Soviet soldiers individually to talk about autobiographical experiences in Afghanistan, but they could certainly novelize them and get away with that. Novels, of course, being thinly disguised versions of autobiography. But then again, I think most autobiography is fiction in the first place. So with Tattoo Zoo, Avalon, he really captures the situation from there. Amazingly, from the strategic to the operational to the tactical, from the command decisions at ISAF to the personal feelings of each one of these characters. I find his writing style fresh, not overloaded with technical military stuff or jargon. When he presents military terms, he's able to present them in a very understandable fashion. It, it reminds me much of how Michael Crichton presented tech-heavy information that was easily understood. So if you want a clearly updated version of U.S. Soldiers in Action, this is a must-read. I was a career Army officer myself, and a lot of this really resonates with me. Apparently, Avalon is a bona fide, genuine special operator NCO and lifelong screenwriter who has spent years embedded with today's soldiers. He knows the TTP. He knows our capabilities. He understands our hearts and minds. He portrays their skills and ethos as brothers in arms in a readable manner. The story builds slowly but becomes hard to put down as this plot developed, this multifaceted plot. The tension builds throughout and keeps the reader wrapped until the end. It should be compared to novels such as Killer Angels, The River and the Gauntlet, or Band of Brothers. This is a great read. It's raw. It's obscene. It's realistic. It really portrays so much of what one really experiences in war in a compelling fashion, in a fashion that amplifies and even resonates with those who have either been there or may, maybe you've had folks who have been there, but you personally have not. So I leave you with that. This is uh, a seminal novel. I think it is the novel that is the instantiation and characterization of what went on these last 20 years and these first years in the 21st century of America and its allies war in the Middle East in what happened because the conceit is always that this war will be short the war won't be long it won't be bloody but all of us know better than that so thank you for listening I appreciate all the comments that have been communicated to me via email constructive and otherwise and I appreciate the fact that I just passed my hurdle of the first anniversary episode with episode number 25. This is number 26. Thank you for your listenership. 
I would urge you, if you get the opportunity to pass on, if you like this podcast and recommend it to others, if you have the opportunity on your podcast venue of choice to leave a review, I would be obliged if you did that. If you'd like to get in touch with me personally, that is cgpodcast at pm.me. That's cgpodcast at pm.me. So please, thank you for your listenership. Thank you for your patience, and I appreciate it. This is Bill, out.